Asigamore View. Happy Asigamore View Day weekend. And I am super excited. Today, our friend, one of my friends, Michael Van Heis, is here to preach today. Michael, uh, he was an apprentice, the preaching apprentice at the Highland Church of Christ here. He is now the worship minister at Oikos Church. He is also full-time at Agape Child and Family Services. So this guy does a little bit of everything. Michael is a graduate of ACU, so go Wildcats. Uh, and I just, I love this guy. I love, Michael, I love your heart. I love your passion for the city, for reconciliation, for the kingdom of God, for discipleship, for worship. And Michael, I'm excited that you are here at Sycamore View today to both share what God has given you uh, and to receive from a church that has given me so much. And Sycamore View, I'm excited for you to hear what God has to say in and through Michael today. So, so Sycamore View, will you, will you join me in welcoming Michael this morning? Good morning. Uh, it's so great to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, like Josh said, my name is Michael Van Heis. Uh, I currently work as a faith connector at Agape Child and Family Services. I serve as a worship minister or leader at two different churches in town. Uh, I disciple student worship team at Highlands uh, Youth Group on Wednesday evenings. And then I also organize, plan, and lead worship at my regular congregation, Oikos Church. Uh, given my year of worship leading, and year and few months of worship leading, I hope I remember how to preach. So uh, I apologize for anything you are about to hear. Uh, again, it's so wonderful to be a guest in your house this morning. Uh, if you're a guest like me, for the past few weeks, Josh has been in a series focused on Acts 2, 42 through 47, and the general message of this series being that Acts 2 is not only about how people are saved, it's a blueprint that describes what saved people do. Acts says this, uh, the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the community, to their shared meals, and to their prayers. A sense of awe came over everyone. God performed many wonders and signs uh, through the apostles. All the believers were united and shared everything. They would sell pieces of property and possessions and distribute the proceeds to everyone who needed them. Every day they met together in the temple and ate in their homes. They shared food with gladness and simplicity. So what do saved people do? Well, saved people live in community. Saved people eat together. Saved people pray together. Saved people share everything with one another, especially with those who are in need. Another way of saying it is that saved people live life, do life with one another. That's what saved people do. But that's not all. There's another thing that saved people do. Saved people worship. Verse 47 says this. They praised God and demonstrated God's goodness to everyone. Saved people worship the one who saves. So for the next few moments... Let's explore what it means to worship, and more precisely, what it means for saved people to worship the one who saves. And I want to begin our reflection this morning with a sobering truth. Everybody 
worships. Everybody worships something or someone. There is no such thing as not worshiping. When God created humankind, he did not engineer us to be machines with limited functionality. Instead, God instilled within human beings with longing, with wants, with desire. God gave us feelings. And in the very beginning, these feelings were rightly pointed at, aligned and directed towards him and him alone. That is until sin entered the picture. See, when sin entered the world, our longings, our desires, our wants became confused. They became misdirected, and they entered a condition of disorientation. Paul describes the result of this confusion, this, the result of this misalignment in the first chapter of Romans, noting how the ungodly worship the creation instead of the creator. Notice that even for the ungodly, there is worship. Even for those who profess there is no God, there is still worship. There is worship of something or someone. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Who or what do you worship? Now, the obvious answer is, especially for uh, us this morning, is, well, we obviously worship Jesus. I mean, we actually came to church on Memorial Day weekend. That counts for something, right? Okay, I get it. Bonus points for you in heaven. Um, here's another way to consider the question. Consider this great line from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah writes, The Lord says, People turn toward me with their mouths and honor me with lip service while their heart is distant from me. If we want to find out who or what we really worship, Take this line of advice I heard from a good mentor and friend of mine, Dr. Fred Aquino, who reminds me of Isaiah's prophetic words. He told me one time, don't just listen to what people say, watch what people do. His point being, watching what people do might arguably be more revealing about what they believe, and for our purposes this morning, what we worship. So, if there was a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week feed to our lives being broadcasted to the world, what would they learn about who or what we worship? If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelations 4. Uh, I will be reading from the Common English Bible. Uh, and so, if you uh, don't have your Bibles, it will also be on the screen here, I think. This is God's word. After this, I looked, and there was a door that had been opened in heaven. The first voice that I heard, which sounded like a trumpet, said to me, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So at once I was in a spirit-inspired trance, and I saw a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on that throne. 
The one seated there looks like jasper and carnelian, and surrounding the throne was a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Twenty-four thrones with twenty-four elders seated upon them surrounded the throne. The elders were dressed in white clothing and had gold crowns on their heads. And from the, and from the throne came lightning, voices, and thunder. In front of the throne were seven flaming torches, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a glass sea, like crystal, was in front of the throne. In the center, by the throne, were four living creatures encircling the throne. The, these creatures were covered with eyes on the front and on the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a human being. And the fourth living creature was like an eagle in flight. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, and each was covered all around and on the inside with eyes. They never rest, day or night, but kept on saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is coming. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on here. Trumpet-sounding voices, 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones with 24 crowns on their head, seven spirits of God, seven torches, a throne in the center with thunder and lightning with four creatures circling around it, each with eyes in the front and back of their being, all chanting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's a lot going on in this text. And if you're like me, it can sometimes, when you read a text like this, it not only leaves us confused, feeling confused, it also makes us feel a little overwhelmed, especially if you haven't read Revelations in a while. Well, if you haven't read Revelations in a, in a while, here is one way to understand the big picture. Revelations is about worship. The Apostle John, the author of Revelation, is writing to several churches in Asia Minor who were facing a whole host of issues. One of those issues revolves around the object or person of worship. These churches were asking questions like, can we openly worship or give our allegiance to emperors, politicians, or other Greco-Roman gods so that we might gain favor, respect, and influence with our non-Christian peers. So, in Revelation 4, John's answer is crystal clear. What John says is, absolutely not. John insisted that if what Christians believe about God is true, then worshiping other gods or other people must be false. For John, there is no gray when it comes to who or what we worship. If we confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, if we believe in his life, death, and resurrection, then our allegiance, our worship, our way of life must be directed towards him and him alone. Revelations is about worship. Now, in Revelations 4, John is de depicting this extravagant glimpse of what, he the he what heavenly worship is going to look like. He continues, starting in verse 9, 
Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne who lives forever and always, the 24 elders fall before the one seated on the throne. They worship the one who lives forever and always. They throw down their crowns before the throne. They say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. It is by your will that they existed and were created. If Revelations is about worship, then Revelation 4 is about worship in the heavenly realm. And worship in the heavenly realm is only going to be about one being, and that being is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the heavenly realm, there will be no misplaced affection for things or people other than God. In the heavenly realm, there is no competition for our loyalty, no influence to seek for the betterment of our own societal position. In the heavenly realm, there are no other gods, no idols to distract our attention. In the heavenly realm, our worship will be fixated on the one who sits on the throne. So what about our worship today? I mean, is there any way we can taste this kind of heavenly worship on earth? I mean, this is a question I've been asking myself for the past year and few months. I mean, this passage is like the implicit mission statement of every worship minister, right? But this is what we pray for, too, if you pray the Lord's Prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, bring your kingdom down on earth just as it is in heaven. So, if that's the case, how do we bring heavenly worship here? And uh, I think the way we should start thinking about this, or a way to begin thinking about this question, is by looking at the 24 elders, they, uh, which I believe might give us some insight. Now... If you crack open the commentary, you'll see a lot of speculation on what the 24 elders wearing 24 crowns sitting on 24 thrones might represent. But instead of hashing out all those speculations and boring you half to death, I would like to do something a little different. I would like for us to, I would like to invite us to consider the 24 elders as just extended me metaphor for us, the church the saved people who worships the one who saves. And to be, to be clear, if there's any scholars in the room, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not saying this is what the author meant when he wrote this. What I am saying is that there might be a word here for us about how, we, how our worship can become heavenly. You know, I'm, I guess I'm just so drawn and struck by this image of the elders giving glory, throwing crowns, and bowing before the Lord. See, when the elders give God glory, in my reading at least, they are singing with their entire being. They are saved people praising the one who saves. And as they pray, the elders throw down their crowns. They remove that thing, that sin, that insecurity, that idol, which blinds them from seeing who has the ultimate authority. And as the elders bow, they assume this posture of submission. They are yielding their entire being to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The elders give throw and bow before the uncreated one who sits on the throne. 
This is such a striking image to me because I think it captures the essence of what it means to worship. But perhaps the reason why I'm so struck by this image of the elders is because it's almost exactly the kind of worship I saw thousands of Memphians commit when I was at my second Grizzly game a few months ago. It just wasn't heavenly worship. It was during one of the playoff games in the crowd, and I'll include myself in the crowd even though I don't know what's going on in basketball. We were going insane. We are screaming, we are yelling at the top of our lungs. Perhaps one could say we were giving praise to the Grizzlies while booing the other team. Whenever a three-point shot was made, we would throw up our hands and jovial clapping. And at various points in the night, our whole bodies would be yielding to the ebb and flow of the game. We'd be sitting when we were down, and we'd be standing up in celebration when we were up. The elders give, throw, and bow. The Memphians I saw at the Grizzly game were giving, throwing, and yielding. Uh, how many of you are Taylor Swift fans? Raise your hands. This is the audience participation part of the service. God is watching. Come on. Okay, I'm just uh, joking. Uh, a few weeks ago, Taylor Swift was in Nashville. And you pro- if you're not her fan, uh, you probably know someone who is a fan of Taylor Swift. I know a ton of them. Many of them are on my student worship team at Highland Church of Christ. You know, I had one of the students go to one of her concerts in Nashville, and, and they were showing me a bunch of videos of the night. And as I watched the video, I saw the same kind of worship I did at a Memphis Grizzly game. The crowd was giving praise after each song. They would raise hands during her most popular songs, and the bodies were ebbing and flowing to the flow of her music. Again, the elders give, throw, and bow. The crowds give, throw, and submit. Now, okay, it's real easy to knock Taylor Swift or the Memphis Grizzlies, but we could put any name who is a cultural icon or celebrity figure, whether it's a musician, actor, comedian, sports team, author, politician, even in our circle, preachers, you put them in the audience or you put them on a, in the stadium and the crowds will flock and we will see an earthly rendition of Revelations 4. The other day I was grabbing lunch with a friend and I was talking to him about the you know, the sermon, how baffled I was after experiencing, you know, a Memphis Grizzly game and, a, and a seeing Taylor Swift's concerts. And I said, you know what's interesting to me? It's so interesting that these games and these concerts can bring people from all walks of life together in one room. And these people in this one room are completely losing themselves. And when you think about it, that's insane, especially when there are people in that room who, some of them have PhDs, educators, lawyers, doctors, and they are losing themselves. And yet, let's also assume that some of these people go to church. Doesn't matter, you know, they just go to church on Sunday. 
one would imagine that some of those folks are probably the mutest participants at that church. What's up with that? And my buddy just looked at me as he was being my therapist, and he calmly replied, frankly, I think if it's between worship and the Taylor Swift or Grizzly game, people find more meaning in the latter. Everybody worships something or someone. The problem is, is that for most of us, we find meaning in the things or people we worship. And these things and people become our crowns that we wear, and we desire to become more like. We worship things and uh, we worship things and people because we find meaning in them, and that meaning con connects us to that object or person in such a way that it misaligns our attention and affection away from the one who sits on the throne. We end up looking like the ungodly Paul refers to in our worship of the creation rather than the creator. Now, to be clear, ministers are not exempt from this misalignment. Uh, in the past few years, I've really embraced this role as a worship minister leader, to, you know, dedicating myself to leading and planning and spiritually forming worship teams at these two places where I'm at. Countless hours were spent honing my guitar skills, my vocals, while listening and critiquing hours upon hours of previous worship services I've led. And through all of this, I became obsessed with my performance, justifying it under the guise of self-improvement. Yet beneath the surface, there was this more subtle, more sinful motivation I found meaning in my identity as a worship minister, and that meaning drew me to the lie that says what connects me to others, what makes me valuable to God and the church, was on how well I performed. I was finding meaning in the lie that humanity has been dealing with from the very beginning that the center of the universe revolves around me. I'm the one at the center of God's throne room. Now, I don't know you very well, but I do know you are human, and if you are human, you worship. Everybody worships something or someone. There's no such thing as not worshiping. For even the ungodly, there is worship of the creation rather than the creator. So I ask you again, who or what do you worship? What is it that you do or listen to throughout the week that dominates the majority of your attention, the majority of your affection? Is it your job, your spouse, your kids, your wealth, your performance, your addiction, your politics, your sin, whatever it is, whatever or whoever that thing might be, I would suggest that the meaning we find in those things ultimately echoes the lie that humans have been cursed with since the fall. And that is that we are at the center of God's throne room. Lord, have mercy. How might we make, then, our earthly worship look a little bit more like heaven? How do we combat against the lie that the center of God's throne room revolves around us? The answer is quite simple. Earthly worship 
can only become heavenly worship and cross-shaped discipleship to Jesus. For in cross-shaped discipleship to Jesus, we are continually learning how to give God praise, glory, gratitude, and honor. It is in our cross-shaped discipleship where we continually learn what it means to bow, what it means to submit and realign our misguided desires to the one who gave us desire. It is only in discipleship where we learn to yield ourselves to the indwelling person of the Spirit who enables us to throw our crowns, to throw our idols, our sin before the one who sits upon the throne as we all proclaim together over and over, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things. It is by your will that they existed and they were created. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is coming. If we want a glimpse of heavenly worship on earth, we must learn what it means to live a life of worship. And that life consists of cross-shaped discipleship to Jesus. That's how earthly worship becomes heavenly. Um, as we transition to the table, I want to give you this image that beautifully captures discipleship. Uh, in the early days of Jesus' ministry, we see an exponential growth in the crowds he was attracting. And in Luke's account, we see a brief depiction of this gro growth as Jesus was standing by the lake teaching God's word. Uh, it's a passing detail, but Luke writes that the crowd was pressing in on Jesus. Uh, Willie James Jennings, a prominent theologian, I think he teaches up north somewhere, captures this scene beautifully by saying, the crowd, the crowd is everything. The crowd is us. People shouting, screaming, crying, pushing, shoving, calling out to Jesus, Jesus, help me! Jesus, over here! People being forced to press up against each other to get to Jesus, to hear him, and to get what they need from him. People who hate each other. People who would prefer not to be next to each other. Pharisees, Sadducees, zealots, rebels, insurrectionists, terrorists, murderers, tax collectors, sinners all. There were, and there were also... Widows, the orphans, the poor, the rich, sex workers, wanderers, magicians, musicians, thieves, gangsters, centurions, addicts, magistrates, city leaders, people from all over the Roman Empire, all pressing to hear and touch Jesus. Jennings goes on to say that in this scene, Jesus creates the condition for discipleship. For it's in this scene where we see the creature, the creator-creature relationship in its most naked, most powerful form. As the creatures are all pressing in on Jesus while at the same time, the creator is giving up his own body for the created. This, that's what this table, what we're about to do, is all about. When we take in the body and blood... It is this perfect representation of the creator giving up his own body to his created, us. And, when we, and as we receive his body and blood, the indwelling spirit, 
pushes our attention, pushes our affection back in alignment to worship the one who sits on the throne. Thanks be to God. Uh, if you are like me, uh, and I guess the Sycamore View, we're about to head to one of these tables. They're scattered all around the room uh, to partake in the Lord's Supper. If you need prayer, we'll have elders up front, including myself, and others scattered uh, around the room. Please feel free to stop by. If you, uh, we would be honored to be present and pray for you. Uh, before we head to the stations, uh, let's pray. Oh, Jesus, you are worthy of it all. By your blood, you purchase for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You are worthy of it all. Worthy. It's a slaughtered lamb to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Worthy is a slaughtered lamb who sits upon the throne. In the name of God, who is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.